Christian, always confident, and sometimes right. It's humorous because we know that person who seems to always be confident, kind of regardless of what the outcome is. Uh, You know, for me, I can often be accused of this. Um, I lined up at my first triathlon. If you know anything about triathlon, confidence is revealed to be true confidence or phony confidence within the first 90 seconds of the race. And so I lined up confident of my ability to swim, bike, and run. Uh, And after the first handful of strokes, I found out that, in fact, yes, you do need to prepare. You do need to train. uh, And swimming is actually quite difficult, especially in a crowd. Because I hadn't trained, I, I panicked. And I realized that confidence was misplaced. I crossed the line at the, uh, at the end, but that confidence uh, was long, long gone. And surely uh, my friends and, and, uh, and brothers and sisters in Christ this morning can, can think back to times when you have felt confident about something and that's been revealed to not be the case. Some hilarious, like my uh, looking like a drowned, drowned rat coming across the, coming across the line, um, and some more difficult, more serious. Well, of course, the, the, the validity of our confidence depends on the object of our confidence. If you've never attempted a triathlon before, then perhaps you shouldn't be confident that you're going to crush uh, your, com- your competitors. And our text this morning speaks also of a confidence. Our text speaks of a confidence that we derive strength and encouragement uh, and perseverance And this confidence comes not from ourselves, but from the Lord. Hebrews 10 refers to a confidence that Christians have to be able to enter the very presence of God. We are confident that God loves and accepts us, not because of who we are, but because of what he has done. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 beginning in verse 19. We're going to look at verses 19 through 25. If you're using the the Pew Bible, that can be found on page 1007. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So are you confident that God loves you? Are you confident that God loves you? If you lack confidence, 
then you're not alone. Everyone struggles with doubt. It's the reality of living by faith and not by sight. But if you're supremely confident, then praise God. I want more of what you've got. But regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, lacking confidence, supreme confidence, consider what God has done. And we see in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews uh, is really just this long and intricate explanation of the difference that Jesus' life makes on uh, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection makes on the people of God's lives. Immediately prior to our text, the author describes the old covenant being superseded by the new covenant. You see, Israel, God's chosen people, thought and did things that constantly fell short of God's good law. And because of that, the people had, had to ongoingly provide sacrifices of atonement. They had this constant reminder that, that shed blood of these animal sacrifices, a constant reminder that sin equals death. And in chapter 9, just prior to our, our verse this morning, in verse 22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So again and again, this rhythm of God's people recognizing that their sin equals death. However, the problem with the old covenant, this system of sacrifices, was that it didn't do anything to change their status. They were sinners, ruined before a good and perfect God. Hebrews 9.9 says, Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the uh, conscience of the worshiper. The old covenant, this sacrificial system, is kind of like an MRI. Right? It does a great job of telling you what the problem is, but it's powerless to fix the problem. In the same way, the law, these sacrifices, were powerless to save. And so the people cried out, We cannot make ourselves holy. We need a savior. So if you're not confident that God loves you, I'm here this morning to tell you there is reason for great confidence. And it's not because of how strong you are. It's not because of how smart you are. It's not because of how much money you have in the bank or anything to do with you. But it's because God chose to love you. Again, Hebrews 9, 12, in the context of our verse, it says, He, that is Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. For you, brothers and sisters, a promised eternal inheritance by Jesus' blood. So what has God God done? He has redeemed you and me by sacrificing his son in our place. You can be confident that God loves you because the blood that has been shed for your sins is not the blood of goats and bulls and calves, powerless to save, but it's the very blood of God's Son, powerful and effective to save. 
And so we, his people, are forever changed because of this new and living way, eternally effective and eternally effected where the old way was ineffective. Therefore, the author of Hebrews encourages us to consider the implications of what God has done. And so we have our text. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, I want us to think about two implications. This is what God has done. What does that mean for us? So this morning, let's consider two implications. The first, that we have a restored relationship with God. That we have a restored relationship with God. And the second, that we have a hope that is certain and unchanging. That we have a hope that is certain and unchanging. So first, what does it mean that we have a restored relationship with God? Well, it means that our lives, once broken by sin, our relationship, once separated from God, has been redeemed. We've been brought near. And in fact, it says in our text for us to draw near to these holy places, which is impossible for the sinner standing on their own, relying on their own strength. To stand before a holy and perfect God is impossible for the sinner. Under the old covenant, covenant, the presence of God, which was manifest in the Old Testament by the Ark of the Covenant, needed to be physically separated from the people. A holy God separated inside the tabernacle for the sake of the people's very lives. For if they entered into it, they would surely die. It's a terrifying thing to consider standing before a holy and perfect God based on our own strength. Because before him, we are ruined in our sin. But for those who have trusted in Jesus as Savior, as Lord, are welcomed into the presence of God, cleansed by his blood, forgiven the debt of their sin, no longer a rebel and an enemy, but welcomed as a loved child. And this is our status, our relationship restored. This new relationship uh, with God is one that can never be changed. It was a time a handful of years ago that I was flying from uh, D.C. to London to visit some relatives. Uh, this was right after I graduated college. And, um, and so I had just expected to sit in the back of the plane. I didn't have any fancy pants, platinum club elite status. Um, I won't ask for a show of hands. I'm sure there's many of you here this morning. Uh, But I'd I'd heard how great business class was. I'd I'd heard rumors and stories of it. Um, And this one time, by, by dint of some kind airline person or perhaps just a mistake, I was upgraded Uh, a 21-year-old into business class. Uh, Of course, my chest stuck out a little bit. I walked with uh, more of a haughty gait uh, because, of course, I immediately knew that I deserved to be there. Um, It's interesting how quickly that changes. Uh, And so fine food, great service, uh, and the plane landed. It was the shortest handful of hours of my life. 
Um, and I got off the plane, farewelled my new friends, and instantly was returned to the status of economy class. Terrible. But for the Christian, our change in status is not as temporary as a flight from D.C. to London. For, Christian, for the Christian, our change in status isn't because of a mistake. It's not because of a fluke. It's not because someone didn't show up for their flight. No, because our status is changed because God chose to send his son to die on the cross, to shed his blood, thinking of you and me specifically when he did so, pouring out uh, his blood and his life in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve, and then rising again from uh, the grave to demonstrate to all of humanity for all of history that indeed that sacrifice was effective and permanent. This is the full assurance that we have that our faith is real, that the tomb is empty, that our status will not change, and that our relationship with God has been restored for forever. Paul, in the letter to the Colossians, describes his desire for that church to know the riches that are found in full assurance of faith. And so likewise, the author of Hebrews describes drawing near to God in this restored relationship with him in the full assurance of faith. Do you know this full assurance? And if you don't, then consider what it is that God has done for you. The full assurance of faith is knowing the origin of your faith and the cause of this change in status. Be fully assured, Christian, that your faith cannot be changed and cannot be altered because it's based on the blood of Jesus Christ. That's our first implication, a restored relationship with God. The second is that our hope is certain and unchanging. Our hope is certain and unchanging. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, Christians have a hope that will never change. It'll never, it'll, it'll never waver. We have a lot of hopes in life, I'm sure. We, we each have them around different things in this world, like, do I have enough money? And will my children grow up well? Will I remain healthy? But even the best financial planning and the best parenting and the, the best diets and exercise, we, we don't have any guarantees of what those outcomes will be. We do have the guarantee that we will spend eternity in the loving presence of God. We sang about it earlier, uh, that the, the things of this world grow strangely dim in the face of God's glory. And so in the same way, our Christian hope is unique because uh, it doesn't rely on us. There's nothing that we do to, to more securely set this hope. The Christian hope relies only on God to deliver and it is precisely because we only rely on God to deliver this eternal outcome that we can be certain of it. You know, we hope that we hold this hope without wavering, not because of our strength to hang on to it, but because of our weakness. It's because we're weak that we know this hope is certain, because we can't affect it. Only God can affect this hope. 
So be encouraged, Christians. We have a restored relationship with God, certain and unchanging hope, and none of it depends on you. These promises are not for the strong. These promises are are not for the self-confident. But these promises are for those who know their need of a saviour. You know, we can be more certain of our eternal home than we can be of the seasons changing from winter to spring. And all because of the last six words in verse 23. For he who promised is faithful. God will keep his promises. He has, he is, and he will continue to be faithful. And so our hope is certain and unchanging because of his ability to deliver. Perhaps my favorite example of God's faithfulness in Scripture is found in the book of Joshua. Mary Beth and I were reading through Joshua together, and if you've ever read Joshua, it starts out really exciting, right? The The people of God are crossing over the Jordan. There's stories of spies and wars and battles. Uh, It's all good stuff. And then you kind of hit the midway point, and it turns into like 10 straight chapters of unpronounceable names and tribes and places. And so I, in my great wisdom and leadership of our home, suggested to Mary Beth that perhaps we should skip over those chapters um, and find something find some greener pastures. Uh, Mary Mary Beth, of course, patient and loving and kind, uh, reminded me that these were real people in real places and God was doing real things in their lives. And so we kept reading. So on and on and on we went until the reason for all the names and places was revealed. Joshua 21, 45. Maybe the most encouraging verse that I've come across in a long time. Joshua 21.45 reads, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Do you see those ten chapters of, of tough names and tough places? Was God fulfilling his promise to the people of Israel? That they would take possession of this land. So this is just the nature of the God that we rely on. That when we are tired of the detail, he is not. When when we want to quit, he will not. When we are not strong enough to hang on, his grip is secure. He who promised is faithful. So we, Christian, can be certain of our secure hope. So these are our two implications, our restored relationship with God because of what he's done and our certain hope because of his faithfulness. And so the text is quite clear on how we're to apply these things. As, as we read through it together, you saw the, uh, the repetition of let us. It repeats three times. And so we're going to look at those three just briefly as, as points of application So knowing what God has done and that he is faithful to his promises, how then should we respond? We should respond by, let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast the confession and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Three clear points of application 
fueled by our confidence in what God has done for us. So first, let us draw near to God. Ultimately, we draw near to God when we enter into his presence in heaven for eternity. The future day and even the hour that that will happen is set. And understanding that reality will change the way we live today. So until that moment, we draw near to God by seeking to know him. There's two ways I want to encourage us to seek to know God, to seek to draw near to him. The first is to recognize that all of creation bears witness to his glory. The beauty and power of nature, the the strength of seasons, the uncontrollable and uncontainable energy of the sun, the expanse of the universe, it all bears witness and testimony to God's glory. I'm sure you've seen... uh, like a beautiful sunrise in the morning or an epic sunset at night. And that just gives a dim shadow of the beauty and glory of God. And now consider the, the literal billions of sunrises and sunsets on every horizon of every planet that's orbiting every sun in all of the universe, seen or unseen, all of them bear testimony to the fact that God is great and he is good And he he is huge. So we draw near to him by seeing him and worshipping him, even in the general revelation we see around us of his creation. We also know God and draw near to him by specifically understanding what he's said to us. He's revealed himself, the author of all creation, to us in his word. And that's a humbling thing. And so as we read chapters 9 and 10 specifically, like revealing what God has done for us and how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has changed our eternity, that should spur us to draw near to him, even in prayer. Let your reading of Scripture be the thing that fuels and and guides your prayer life. If If you're wondering how to encourage yourself in this new year in prayer, just read some of the shorter psalms and let that inspire your prayers to God. Repeat the words that are used. God's revealed himself specifically so that we might know him in his word. Open your Bible and see that. So let us draw near to God by knowing him, by praying to him, and looking forward to that day when faith will become sight. Second, let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Because we hope in God's promises, because God is faithful to keep those promises, and because God has sacrificed his son in our place to restore our relationship, uh, our confession will not waver. We spoke about this before. It's it's not that we are so strong that it will not waver. It's because what he has done. And so I wonder... I ask you the question, are you telling yourself those truths? I know that uh, I often fall into the the trap of telling myself lies. Internally in my own head, I sometimes convince myself that the people who are around me don't care about me, that I'm not loved by them, uh, that I'm not what God says of me, uh, that I'm not saved. These are all lies that run around in my head. 
And I would just encourage us, if that's you, if you, if you find yourself in that same place telling yourself lies, then remind yourself that the confession that we hold to and its unwavering nature is because of what God has done. Remind yourself of true things. Preach to yourself true things about what we see in Scripture. Well, that's internal. We also hold to this confession, hold fast to this confession externally as well. In the way that we speak, in the way that we act, uh, in the things that we do, uh, speak clearly of this confession. Consider what that sounds like to the people around you. Consider what they're seeing of your life. This doesn't mean that you have to create this facade that's not true. What it does mean is that you have to be conscious of the fact that as a Christian, you bear witness to who God is. So in this coming year, who around you is going to know more about your heavenly ambitions? Who around you is going to uh, become clearer on the certainty that you have that your relationship with God has been forever changed? How are you going to demonstrate that to them, whether it be in word or deed? And then thinking about this congregation here, whenever I have the pleasure of looking out over, over a congregation, especially one like this, I think, of, I think of individual Christian, almost like rebar that's woven together inside a huge concrete structure, reinforcing it. And so the Christian life is very much like that, strengthened even greater as it's woven together. And so your, your communal confession becomes louder and louder as, as a congregation, you demonstrate to the people around you that there is no wavering on your hope. That because of what God has done, this church and this congregation is going to bear bold and clear witness to his glory. So finally, let us consider two things. How to stir one another up in love and good works and also consider this meeting together. So consider how to stir one another up in love and good works. Well, I never knew how much I loved D.C. until I lived in D.C., right? The, the scheduling, the go-go-go, the, the, the fast pace, that's what I love. Right? I didn't know that until I moved here. In Sydney, when we talk about uh, work-life balance, that's really just a nice way of saying, I'm probably going to cut out early to go surfing, that's, that's most people in Sydney. It's work-life balance. That's what they're saying when they say that. But in D.C., I just I love it. And perhaps that's because I'm not in politics. Uh, but I, I genuinely enjoy being in D.C. But the thing I love most about it is the strategy. People love to get together and strategize over their career or over a particular, uh, particular project. And as I'm reading verse 24 and I think I'm reading it correctly, it seems to me that we need to apply some of that DC-ness to how we are encouraging each other to love and good works. We should be thinking and strategizing and plotting and planning and conspiring so that others might join in love and good works. This exhortation is not just for your pastors, and your elders, and your deacons, but it's for all the members of this church. This is for you. 
If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, one of the clear applications from this text this morning is that you are qualified and equipped for the task of loving your neighbor and for doing good works, for doing good to others. So as you do good, make sure that you bring others along with you. As you see others loving people around them, encourage them. Put wind in their sails. Point others to their example. And then you be the first to follow their example in that. Consider who you could invite into your home even this week for the express purpose of stirring them up in love and good deeds. Make it super easy for them by thinking of something specifically and and praying about it with them. Wouldn't it be incredible to know of dozens of stories in which we encourage each other in love and good works? The power and impact of that would be incredible. And so the author of Hebrews here uh, encourages us to that application. And so then finally, let's consider our meeting together. Verse 25 warns against neglecting to meet, the implication being that it would be dangerous to your spiritual walk not to meet together. But also consider the purpose of our meeting. Certainly the corporate gathering serves a very clear purpose. And chief among them uh, is to feed your soul. For Pastor Mike, I'm sure his highest priority is to know that you are growing in your love and affection for the Lord and your love and affection for your neighbors. Make sure that you are coming with that same goal in mind, with a desire for spiritual growth as you gather together on a Sunday morning. We meet together so that we can encourage one another. So phone calls and text messages and Instagram posts are all fine, but they're no replacement for being together, embracing one another, and sharing joys and trials. Inviting others to share in these joys and trials, while it might seem scary, and there might seem to be risk, it is a godly and humble thing to do. Not only are you declaring that you need others as you need the Lord, You're also helping them to bear witness to how God is providing in those trials and providing in those joys. You're coming to church, you're meeting with your small group, you're getting together for lunch and coffees or whatever should be a deliberate act in which we encourage one another. So make your meeting time that kind of deliberate encouragement. So... We have a restored relationship with God. Our hope is certain and unchanging, not because of anything we have done, but because of what God has done on our behalf. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ gives the Christian confidence that will never fail. And so we draw near to God, confident in his love and acceptance of us. We hold fast to our confession of hope, knowing that we Uh, can be certain of it. And we encourage each other looking forward to the day when we will be in the presence of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we draw near to you. And Lord, we, we 
rejoice knowing that as we uh, remember your broken body and spilt blood on our behalf, that you have restored our relationship with you and given us certain hope. And so as we approach the the table, Lord, we we pray that you would uh, impress upon our hearts and minds this joy, these riches of the full assurance of faith. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.